0: Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2.10, India and the Edge of the World. It's 118 AD. In the Mediterranean, Rome, the Pantheon is being built. In China, the country is being ruled by the fiercely competent Empress Dowager Deng. And, in India, new invaders are about to come rushing down the Ganges. The other day, a friend and I were chatting, and we were talking, as friends often do, about the Kushanas, the heroes of the last episode of this podcast. And my friend said to me, well, of course, the Kushans, the Kushanas, back in the early days, they only had a very small kingdom. Well... Something sounded a bit odd about calling the Kushan Kingdom small, so we went and checked it out on a map. And the early Kushans, as you might remember, ruled Central Asia from Uzbekistan all the way down to Kashmir, and they might have ruled twice as much as that if if their kingdom stretched up onto the steppe to the north. Well, it turns out that that's about the same as the length of Italy, and probably quite a bit wider. Or in other terms, that's the distance between Kolkata and Mumbai. Or in other terms, that's a two to three hour flight to cross the Kushan territory. My friend and I were emphatically wrong. The early Kushans ruled a large territory. And Central Asia is very much bigger in real life than it was in our imagination. So why did my friend and I get it so wrong? My best guess is that it's got something to do with those three places we started with, the Mediterranean, China, and India. We tend to think of each of those as their own self-contained world, and that makes us overlook the size and importance of the places in between. Take the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean literally means middle earth, medius, middle, terra, earth. The great green, our sea, as the Romans called it. If you went to school in Europe, the Mediterranean was the central stage for most of the stories you were told in history class. And even when those stories weren't directly about things happening right next to the sea, they were somehow linked back to the sea, as if the Mediterranean was a sort of whirlpool sucking in everyone's attention. So the pharaohs of Egypt gained their power from the river that drained into the Mediterranean. Julius Caesar's invasions of Gaul were for the glory of a Mediterranean city and even the wars of Alexander the Great all the way over in Persia are told as the adventure of a young Mediterranean lad. Or take China, that also feels like it's a self-contained world. This time, it's not just school history lessons telling us that China is its own world. Even the people of ancient China thought of it as the centre of the world. That's why they called it the Middle Kingdom. In fact, some early Chinese scientists seemed to think that this was literally all there was to the Earth. China, with a bit of Mongolia to the north, and a bit of Burma and so forth to the south. And that's why, although they knew that the Earth was curved, just as it is, they thought it must be a square. The chunk on the outside of a sphere, kind of bulging up slightly. Because China's all there is, right? And India, well, in my imagination at least, India's just the same. If I'm utterly honest with myself, I tend to subconsciously think of it as a sort of fortress, hemmed in by the sea to the south and the mountains to the north, and maybe there are a few narrow passes as gateways into it from Afghanistan. All the good stories in India, in my imagination, seem to happen either inside it, or in some completely different place. And that's why the Kushana kingdom in Central Asia was so much smaller in my imagination than it was in reality. It wasn't in one of the centres of the world. It was at the fringes. In our imaginations, it was somewhere where nothing much happens, where there's nothing much but grass and desert. But this idea I'm talking about, that India, Rome and China were the centres of the world, that would have seemed Ridiculous to the cushions. And it probably seemed equally ridiculous to many of the North Indians that they were about to rule over. For them, maybe China's a centre of the world, maybe Rome is a centre of the world, but the third centre of the world wasn't in India any longer. Our city, Pataliputra, was no longer centre stage. Instead, the third centre of the earth was just outside India. In Central Asia, and especially Bactria. That's where the action was, just as much as it was in the Mediterranean and China. That's where the great empires clashed. Parthia, the Seleucids, the Sassanids, the Shakas and the Kushans themselves. Empires with names which, tellingly, we seldom hear today. For the Kushans, and perhaps the Indians they ruled, India was on the fringes they thought of it much as we might think of Central Asia today, if we live in India or Europe. It was, for this moment in time, on the edge of a larger and more powerful series of empires. And this idea that India is on the fringes remained emphatically true for the Kushans, even after they moved into northern India. They always thought of it as a fringe with Bactria at the centre. Unlike previous invaders, the Kushan rulers always treated themselves as outsiders in India. Their hearts were stuck in Bactria in Central Asia. This episode, we look at the story of the Kushan invasion into India, how they took over Northern India, and how they clung firmly to their home, clinging onto it both with their traditions and with their swords. The old king, the founder of the Kushana Empire, is dead. And his son inherits the Kashana throne. And the son's name is... Well, to be honest, if I tried to pronounce his name, it would go badly wrong. His name's got five letters and only one of them is a consonant. In fact, three of the letters are the same letter. Oh. Okay, fine, fine. If you insist, I'll try it. His name is something like... Uimo. Thankfully, in Indian texts, he's known by the much easier to pronounce, Rima Kadphysis. And that's what I'm going to call him from now on. Actually, in Chinese texts, he's also known by another name, the Destroyer of India. And that's because Rema Kadphyses invaded and conquered much of northern India. His father had taken the cushions to the doorstep of India through the Khyber Pass and taken its first city right at the foot of the Khyber Pass. Just poised, ready for an invasion of India, and now Rima's going to take that invasion on. He's going to roll over northern India. Sometimes he's going to destroy what he found almost entirely. The first order of business for Rima was to take Taxila. Taxila was the ancient university town of, nor- of, of northern India. It's a couple of hours' drive east from the city that his father had won in India. And just next to Taxila, there's another city, the newer city of Sirkup. Sirkup had been founded a few centuries ago, it was much newer, it had been founded by the Indo-Greeks, and its neat avenues and its central road were in stark contrast to the winding passages of ancient Taxila. So Vima's army sets off to the east. And invaders had come that way before, of course. So, when the people of Surkop saw Weemakadphysis and the Kushan army coming, they knew just what to do. They ran for their valuables, grabbing handfuls of the jewelry and their fine cups, and then they went to their floorboards, lifted the floorboards up, and buried their treasures there. And they told themselves, Look, when the invaders have passed, we'll come back and we'll dig it up again, and we won't have lost anything. It's a sensible move. Wima Cephasis was the, not the same sort of chap as the previous invaders. Soon enough, Vima's army rolled over Surcup. But this time, unlike the previous invaders, Vima's army sacked the city of Surcup so thoroughly that its people were scattered, and they never returned. Their treasures remained hidden under the floorboards for almost two millennia until they were dug up by modern archaeologists. And we found hoards containing many pieces of fine gold jewellery, and even more silver vessels. And it's just beautiful stuff. So Vima's first steps into India were steps in blood. But he wasn't finished yet. He appointed some generals to take control of the area, and then he pushed on further into India. His horsemen, his army, forded the five rivers of the Punjab and went on further out of the Punjab, east, until they found the Ganges, and from there they followed the Ganges downstream. We hear of no significant military resistance at all. His horsemen simply massacred anyone who stood against them. And they made it all the way to Mathura, the ancient city of Krishna. It's a little way south of modern Delhi. In just a few years, maybe less, Vima had expanded the empire 1,000 kilometres into India. His father's empire had been huge, but Vima's empire was unfathomable. The Kushana Empire now stretched far into India, and the Kushana emperors had a great deal of power. And The power started to go just a little bit to their heads in a way which would make them seem very strange to the Indian people they now ruled. To get to the bottom of what was going on, we should take a journey in Kushan-ruled India. Let's start at Mathura. Mathura was a very important city to the Kushans. It was their local capital for the area. It was busy with administrators and soldiers. But we're not going to stay around in the city long. We're going to leave the city heading north. We'll go across the river. And after a few kilometres, we'll find an archway. We'll pass under it and we'll see the garden with a well. But we're not going to be paying attention to that, because in the garden is a huge building, raised on a brick plinth, monumental in size, 100 foot long, 60 foot wide. Back in Kushana times, this hall was filled with statues. Now, when modern archaeologists made this journey and found the hall themselves, they found only a single statue still standing inside. But what a statue. Again, a gargantuan thing, over six foot tall, which is all the more impressive because it depicts a man not standing, but sitting, settled on a throne. The arms of the throne are lions, and the man himself is lithe and muscular. He's kitted out with boots and warm, long-sleeved clothes. Unfortunately, the statue is missing his head, but archaeologists found an inscription beneath the statue. It read, Maharaja, King of Kings, Son of God, the skein of the cushions, the King. This was the statue of Rima Kadphysis himself. Yes, you heard me right. Vima thought he was the Son of God. And it wasn't just a passing phrase beneath one statue, it wasn't just an odd quirk. He called himself Son of God all over the place, and his descendants were at it too. And it's not the only grand divine title that he gives himself. Elsewhere, Vima calls himself Sava Lago Ishvara, which means Lord God of all people the Kushana kings believed that they were gods. Divine, big time. And that was the entire point of this strange hall of statues. It was called a god house, a Devakula. And when Kushan kings put their portraits in there, put their sculptures in there, they were telling everyone that they were gods. And just to make the point really, really clear... They put statues of more traditional gods in the statue house too, and they even had the goal to make their own statues bigger and more impressive than the statues of the traditional gods. And to top it all off, the local Brahmins were expected to be regular visitors at the hall. So Rima Kadvisis and his descendants made themselves bigger than the gods and attended on by priests. That's quite an ego. This idea of divine kingship was alien to India. To the ancient Indians ruled by the Kishanas, the whole God house of statues thing would have seemed really odd. Now, those ancient Indians might well have heard about statue houses, of course. If they were very well travelled, they might even have seen the statue house of the Satavahanas, the Indian dynasty on the Deccan Plateau to the south. That statue house is a different sort of thing. It's a small niche carved in a mountain above a pass, no bigger than a suburban living room. It was an intimate space in which you could meet a mortal, a king and queen. And our travelling ancient Indian might have gone there and read the inscription. It was written in the same language as used in the Kushana monument. The inscription talks about how these Satavahana kings had humbly served the gods and how much they'd sacrificed for the gods. None of that was anything like this strange new Kushana Hall of Statues. The Kushanas simply had a different idea of kingship, one alien to India. The Satavahanas, their kings were mortals, serving the people and serving the gods. But the Kushana kings, they were gods themselves, demanding to be worshipped. Now, perhaps we should add a bit of scholarly caution to what I've just said we don't want to go too far. Ancient Indians did worship kings, but they didn't worship any of the kings from our period of time. Instead, they worshipped kings who ruled long ago, and perhaps even were mythical. And no one was worshipping the Satavahana kings in the same way they worshipped Rama. So wherever the Kushanas got their idea of divine kingship from, it wasn't from India. Ancient Indians just didn't think in that way. So, exactly where did the Kushanas get this weird idea of divine kingship? Well, it was either Rome or China. The Romans also worshipped their emperors, and just like the Kushanas did, they built temples around the empire with statues of the emperors in them, to wow the local people and generally be impressive. So, is that where the Kushanas got the idea from? Maybe. The Kashanas certainly had a close eye on Rome, and they were quite happy to nick a good idea from Rome when they saw one. The later Kashanas called themselves Kaisara, Caesar, just like Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus and all the other Roman emperors. But it's even more likely that the Kashanas got the idea of divine kingship from China. The Chinese emperors had called themselves Son of Heaven. And once, the Kushanas would have known this very well, because many generations before, the Kushana territory had bordered China. It would have been right next to the Han emperors. And perhaps the memory of that stuck with them, and was passed down by the Kushana elders, so that when a Kashana became emperor themselves, the obvious thing to do was to call themselves Son of God. So, the Kushana emperors had made themselves into a thing alien in India living god kings. But they were alien to India in other ways too. And to find out how, we should just take a trip back from the statue house, from the god house, to the great city of Mathura. And as I said, it would have been packed full of administrators. It was the administrative capital of that part of the Kushan emperor, Empire. And the administrators, All of them would have been cushions. Maybe an Iranian or two would have snuck in, but they were all part of an elite raised in Bactria and foreigners in India. And this was a little bit, well, new. The other invaders didn't keep themselves apart in such a rigid way. The previous invaders, the Shukkas, they'd married into Indian royal families and employed Indian administrators. Sometimes the chief advisor to the king was a local Indian. And before that, the Indo-Greek invaders, they had done something a bit similar. An Indian could have gone quite far in those foreign administrations. But if you were an ancient Indian, and you were in Kushana-controlled territory, you were out of luck. From viceroys to governors to judges, all the senior people in an administration, they were all outsiders. These were outsiders ruling the vast majority of Kushan-controlled India. Maybe there were a few small republics who were allowed to keep managing themselves um, with their local uh, ancient Indian systems, but the Kushana elites, the foreigners, ruled almost all of their territory directly. So as a local ancient Indian, the best you could hope for was to become the village headman, there just to collect tax for your betters. This elite of foreign outside rulers were constantly reminding themselves of their separateness. They were always reminding themselves that their home was in Bactria. The godhouse, that great hall of statues, might have been one of these reminders. Clearly, it was a statement about something, this huge public building not too far from the administrative capital. And some historians say it was there to impress the locals. But other historians say that it was there for the Kushana elite. It was there to remind themselves of where they came from. Because it was just like back home, back home in Bactria, where there were five other statue houses equally grand. The Kushana elite kept their heart in Bactria in other ways too. Previous invaders had quickly adopted Indian languages. The most recent invaders, the Shaka Kings, learnt to write in the most elegant Sanskrit. And they even composed Sanskrit poems themselves. The Kushanas? They didn't bother. They kept their language, Arya or Iranian. They only switched to Prakrit when they needed to communicate with the locals. And it was more than just language that tied the Kushana elite to the bactria of their childhood. It was the clothes they wore too. Previous invaders adjusted their dress and their costumes to their new Indian home. But even after several generations, the Kushanas are always depicted wearing the costume of the steppe. Warm, long-sleeved shirts, a tunic down to the knees, and trousers beneath – Or if not normal trousers, then loose leggings. Loose leggings made sure that your legs didn't chafe after a long day riding on the horse. And sometimes they would be depicted wearing a conical hat with flaps to cover the back of the the neck. Now, all that costume would, would have fitted right in if you were a horseman gallivanting around the steppe in Central Asia. But it was hardly suited to the warmth of India and it would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Most Indians of the time wore two pieces of unstitched cotton wrapped around them, often with a headdress. In every way, the Kushan elite were reminding themselves and their subjects that no matter how long they stayed in India, and no matter how much of India they ruled, the centre of their world was Bactria, and India was just on the edges in their mind. But keeping your heart in Bactria whilst you try to control India is a tricky business. After Wemek is an Indian invasion, running the empire must have been an administrative nightmare. The capital was, naturally enough, back in Bactria. That's the homeland. That's where the heart is. Imagine you're sitting in Bactria and you try to send out instructions to Mathura, hand the instructions off to a messenger, and the messenger has to pass through the great mountain range, the Hindu Kush, they weave their way through the Khyber Pass. Then they have to get across the five rivers of the Punjab and down the Ganges. By the time the message reached, it would have been out of date. If the message ever reached at all. In practice, the Kashanas may have actually kept a sort of roaming capital. We know that uh, they took some hostages from foreign kings, Yes, they were back up to their old tricks again. And when they kept the hostages, sometimes they kept them in India during the winters, and then they moved them up to Afghanistan in the summer. So perhaps the emperor's court moved around a bit too. But when the emperor wasn't around, the governors and viceroys of Kushan India must have had a pretty free hand to act as they wished. And that's why the Indian cities of Peshawar and later Mathura became so important to the Kushans. They became local capital cities, surrounded by inscriptions and public works. Now, all of this stretch and strain across the Hindu Kush, caused by this insistence on keeping Bactria as the centre of the world, all of this would eventually become a stretch too far. The division would bring the Kushan Empire crashing down. But we're not quite ready for that story yet. <laughs> Anyway, back to our emperor, Vima Kadphysis. He had just finished conquering the Indian lands and setting up his administration when he was called back on urgent business. Back up the Ganges, over the five rivers of the Punjab, through the Khyber Pass, past Kabul, into Bactria. And then beyond, to where the Han Chinese were waiting. The Han were going to cause trouble for the Kushans. Back in the old day, the Han and the Cushions had had a good working relationship. They weren't quite friends, but they were friendly co-workers. In the last episode, the Chinese had sent an emissary suggesting the two of them work together to beat up the Huns. It hadn't quite worked out, but the relationship remained cordial. Well, in 78 AD, the Han Chinese called up their old colleagues again. A great Chinese general was in the area. His name was General Ban Chao. And he needed the Kushanas' help. Exactly why he needed their help is a long story. It involves a rebellion, and the old Huns are involved there too, somehow in a convoluted sort of way. Actually, they were involved in pretty much all of China's troubles up north. But those details don't matter for our story. All we needed to know is that General Ban Chao needed cooperation from the cushions. And for a while, he got the cooperation. He sent an emissary to the cushions. The emissary was laden down with fine gifts for Vima Kadphysis. Silk woven with gold and silver threads. Beautiful, soft cloths to soften the cushion king up. And they did their job marvellously. The cushions did exactly what Ban wanted. And they even joined in on another attack just to help out General Ban Chao even more. The relationship between the two nations, China and Kushana, was going along swimmingly. But then the Kushanas wanted to take the relationship to the next level. They sent an envoy to China, an envoy laden with gifts, this time not silk brocade, but precious stones, antelopes and lions. And in return for these fine gifts and all the assistance with the Chinese wars, all the Cushions asked for was a Han Chinese princess for the Cushion king to marry. Well, General Ban Chao wasn't having any of this. He fell upon the envoy, the Cushion envoy, with all his fine gifts, even before the envoy could reach China. He arrested him insulted him, and sent him packing back to Kushana. It was quite a rejection. And the Kushans didn't take rejection lightly. Remek or perhaps one of his viceroys, gathered a huge force of Kushan warriors, perhaps as many as 16,000 men, maybe even 70,000. All of them assembling in the Bactrian homeland, and then they set out north, up around the top of the Himalayas, headed right for General Ban Chao and the Chinese army. Now Ban Chao's army must have been terrified when they heard that this vast cushion horde was back on the steppe and headed their way. The Han army was vastly outnumbered and the cushions were obviously more than a little bit offended by the rejection they'd received and eager to get a little blood to make themselves feel better about it. If you were in the Chinese army, wouldn't you be terrified? Who wouldn't be? Well, General Ban Chao, he didn't see anything to be scared of. He called his troops into line and he gave them a little pep talk. Those cushions, they've marched several thousand li to get here, he said. They're going to be desperately tired. And look, they haven't even bought any baggage carriages, so they're going to be desperately hungry too. All we need to do is make sure that they can't get hold of any food when they get here, then we'll sit around for a bit and they'll have to go home. And it worked out exactly as the great Hun general had said it would. The cushions arrived with their vast numbers, strong arms, swords and bows. But they also brought with them their vast numbers of hungry mouths to feed. And the Han army had left nothing for them. They'd taken away all of the grain and the other food into their fortress, or burnt the rest. The head of the Kushan army, the Kushan Viceroy, sent a messenger to a nearby friendly king, asking for food urgently. But this was exactly what General Ban Chao had been waiting for, He'd already set up an ambush, lying in wait for the messenger. And the messenger walked right into it. Was promptly killed, and his head cut off. General chow took the head of the messenger and dumped it at the feet of the cushioned viceroy. The viceroy finally knew he was beaten. He begged chow to be allowed to leave alive. And after having been given permission, the Kushan army packed up their swords and their bows and fled back to the safety of their Bactrian homelands. According to this story, the Kushans had suffered a huge loss of international prestige. First they had been denied a marriage with the Han Chinese, then they had been publicly embarrassed on the battlefield. They were no longer seen as equals of China and the enemies of the cushions started to lobby the Chinese to wipe out the cushions once and for all. Or, at least, so the story goes. If you haven't guessed it already, it's a story from a Chinese source, not from a cushion source. In fact, it's a source written by Ban Chao's own family, his brother, his nephew and his niece. And that, you'd think, would make the story just a little bit biased, so it ain't necessarily as the stories go. Almost certainly the Kushans attacked Ban Chao, almost certainly they didn't land a killing blow, but they may have simply been heading off the Hun, keeping them out of their territory. The Kushanas certainly didn't seem to particularly care about the Hun Chinese anymore. Bactria was their home now. Now, if you've been listening very closely indeed, you'll have noticed that the stories that I've told can't possibly all be true. The dates of the different stories just don't match up. According to the stories I've just told, Vrima became emperor in the 2nd century AD, quite a long time after he was the emperor defeated by the Chinese in the 1st century AD. Something's gone wrong. And it's gone wrong because all of the dates I've given in this episode, and in fact in the last one too, could vary by up to 100 years or more. Now, uncertainty about the dates is nothing new in itself. After all, in this series we're in the so-called dark age of ancient Indian history, and dates are harder to come by than a needle on the step. What is new is how much the uncertainty in the dates matter. Usually, we're ignorant about the dates but it doesn't matter all that much you know the order of the events in the story even if you don't know when the whole story happened ancient historians love a good game of debate the date lots of pages have been written about those debates but i don't tend to worry overly about the debates for the purposes of this podcast i just follow the dates given by a respected historian of the period and tell you the story but for this episode the confusion in the dates matters for the story itself And that's because there are multiple different sources outside of India telling us about the Cushions. India is on the fringe in this episode, not only in the minds of the Cushions, but also in the sources. So, for example, Roman sources tell us of an embassy from the Cushions who came to meet Emperor Trajan. But they don't say which Cushion king sent them. I mean, why bother with such details for an empire so far away from Rome? And Chinese sources tell the attempt of the Cushions to crush Ban Chao's army in around 87 AD. But again, the concerns of the Cushions are too far away to care about which king sent them. All we are told is that they were sent by the Cushion, the Yuqi king. So we can only work out which Cushion kings these stories are about if we can work out when these Cushion kings lived. But that's exactly what we don't know. We don't know which Kushan king lived when, and so we don't know which Kushan king did what. And of course, what applies to the Kushan kings also applies to their people. Without their dates, we don't know how to connect up the stories from faraway lands. By the by, I've chosen dates from Ifran Habib's book, They're a bit later than the average dates, and if Habib's dates are right, then the attack on Ban Chao would have been led by Kudulik advices, not his son, Rima. If other historian dates are right, then the attack was led by even later Kushana kings and should have been a couple of episodes later. The confusion's all a bit confusing, if you see what I mean. And that's the trouble, if you use sources from distant lands. So why don't we hear from the Kushanas themselves... Every week we read something from the original sources, so this week, why don't we read something from the cushions? Actually, that's a bit trickier than it sounds. What I'd really like to do is return to that godhouse, that, that hall of statues near Metora, the one with the huge statue of Rema It had an inscription in that, in that hall, and the inscription was written in prakrit, the local language, in a Greek script so it was easy for many of the ancient Indians to understand it, and it's going to be easy enough for us to understand it. What's more, it would be great to read this inscription, because it's probably fantastically important for understanding how the Cushions saw themselves. So, it's more than a little bit unfortunate that the inscription's almost completely destroyed. In fact, the entire hall, the entire godhouse, has been deliberately vandalised all the heads struck off from the statues and most of the statues themselves splintered into innumerable pieces, impossible to assemble together again. Not the work of modern vandals, but the work of ancient Huns who had passed through India in the years to come. All of that is a story for a much later episode. But we wanted to hear from the Cushions. Fortunately, there are other inscriptions from the time of the early Cushions, from the time of Vimacadphysis. They're spread over a large area of Central Asia. Unfortunately, most of them are even harder to understand than the destroyed inscription near Matura. And that's partly because those inscriptions are damaged too, but it's mostly because those inscriptions are often in a script that nobody knows and a language that no one really understands. It could be the lost language of the Kushans. The longest one is inscribed at a place called Dashti Nawa. This is a place that Vima Kadphysis conquered. And a tremendously smart historian has given an attempt at translating it, I've given a few modifications to make it easier to understand. And here's what we think Vima Kadphysis said. Behold, we, King of Kings, the Noble, the Great, Rima, the Cushion. By the way, we normally call him Rima Kadphyses. Historians used to think that Kadphyses was a sort of surname, but it turns out it was just a kind of fancy title. I think it means something like honourable form. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yes. Behold, we, King of Kings, the Noble, Great Rima, the Cushion. Now... Here, we order to erect the commanded text for the welfare of heroic words. Vima mounted on the mountains. He was able to cross the high region. He inspected Capisa. He put relief to his advancing domestics, moved forward his forces, fought a battle, crossed a region, pursued, captured the crushed Sassans, destroyed them. Sarnes, sorry. Graciously, he rested his servants. He offered presents to all of them. He celebrated a feast for the god, being devoted and gracious. Then he held feastings for the officers and the warriors all together. He ordered to engrave on the rock the favourable report that he removed the tax and contribution from the sanctuary of the supreme god. That's it for this week. Next week, we're going to meet up again with the people of Pataliputra. The last time we really talked about Pataliputra, our city, it was empty, a desolate, like a forest. When we meet it again next episode, it's going to be full of people. It hasn't been politically important for a long time. The great leaders of the world haven't been there, not even to invade. All of that's about to change but that's a story for the next episode. As for this episode, apologies for my pronunciation of names. Normally I'll pronounce the odd Indian name in the wrong way, but this week you've had to put up with me mispronouncing Central Asian names and Chinese names too. It's very embarrassing for me. Thank you for putting up with me. And thank you for listening in general. If you've been enjoying the podcast's Please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snail Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Have a great week. Happy Holy. Take care.